Welcome to another episode of Spotlight on Natural Resources, where we shine some light on what's going on in your environment. I'm your host, Abigail Garfalo. And I'm your co-host, Karen Garrett. And today we have actually a little special edition of the podcast. We are here with Scott Shermer, the state plant regulatory official with the Illinois Department of Agriculture, and Chris Evans, the forestry extension and research specialist with University of Illinois Extension, to talk a little bit about spotted lanternfly. Welcome, y'all. Thanks for having us. Yeah, happy to be here. Well, it's here. Uh, the The reports came out, what, a month or so ago, Aaron? Um, yep. that spotted lanternfly has reached Illinois. I know us extension professionals have been hearing it about it for at least a year, if not longer. Um, and so we want to talk more about it and, and hear from the experts of what the heck is going on with it. What is it? Things like that. So let's start with, with this one. Spotted lanternfly has, you know, it was recently found. Tell us, tell us about it. What is it and why are we concerned about it? Um, so spotted lanternfly, as many people are probably aware of and familiar with the term, is an, is an invasive um, species or, or non-native um, to North America. So it was first found in Pennsylvania back in 2014. Uh, and we've been uh, kind of watching it and, and evaluating it uh, ever since. So, um, you know, as it slowly moved across the, uh, the eastern portion of the country toward us, um, we've, uh, we've been preparing for it, um, keeping up on research, keeping up on what the potential implications are of this pest. Uh, and lo and behold, it, it showed up here. You know, it wasn't a matter of if, it was a matter of when. Um, and so I feel like we're in a pretty good position um, based on the fact that we do have uh, folks that have been on a readiness team, a readiness plan, Chris uh, included, and, and multiple other agencies. So it was a, it was a multi, uh, multi-agency effort. But uh, again, we're, we're, we're primarily concerned about it because it's non-native, um, you know, in, in another way to put it, it's, it's not supposed to be here. So it's going to cause issues and, and have ramifications that, uh, that we just normally wouldn't deal with, with, uh, with an insect or a pest that, uh, that was, uh, from, that's from around here. So I know we're probably going to get into the, the nitty gritties uh, and, and the details on that later, but uh, at this point, I'll, I'll kick it over to Chris for his perspective. Yeah. And uh, thanks, Scott. I think that, you know, we're, we're concerned about just from what Scott said, but I think we're kind of still smarting a little bit from Emerald Ash Borer, right? Everybody, has seen over the last 20 years this kind of collapse of, of ash in our state and some real serious um, kind of changes and negative changes due to the, an invasive insect, right? And so we see this other invasive insect that has a wide host range and, and kind of our alarm bells go up, right? And we'll talk about how I think it's very different than emerald ash borer and that's a, a good thing. But I think that that just made us more more wary in general of, of um, new insects just because we've experienced a really bad one very recently. Yeah. And I mean, emerald ash borer was like a physical change to everybody's streets. I mean, from a forestry perspective, but like a lot of people who had these as streetscape streets, like uh, trees really saw the change that this had. So it, it um, that implication really, I mean, at least touches where I'm at, which is Cook County. Yeah, well, absolutely. And, and as Scott said, the fortunate thing about spotted lanternfly and how it differs from Ramillo ash borer is simply we knew about this one for a, quite a while before it showed up in Illinois and then Emerald ash borer probably by the time we even heard of Emerald ash borer it was already in Illinois right and so it's just it was a much faster um, arrival here versus spotted lanternfly which we've we've had a lot of research about it happen in other parts of the of the country before it got to Illinois and that gives us a little bit better ability to kind of prepare and understand how to respond to it. 
Yeah, and, and just to add on to that too is is that um, you know a lot of the invasive species, um, a lot of the pests that we talk about don't necessarily impact homeowners like something like emerald ash borer. I think there are stats out there that you know Abigail, like you mentioned, you know it changed the landscape on the parkways in a lot of communities. But I think there was there was data out there that you know one in every three properties in in Illinois or the Chicagoland area probably had an ash tree on it. So you know people were reeling trying to deal with um, managing that, mitigating that risk. You know, whereas if you talk about something like a corn or a, a soybean or, um, you know, an apple pest, for example, um, you know, that's going to be more in the production side of things and not necessarily hit people in their backyards. And, uh, you know, we'll get we'll get to that with this one for sure. The perfect segue into my next question. <laughs> so what exactly what does spotted lantern fly do and how are those implications of of what it does different for homeowners, you know, private landowners and then more of the you know, farmer specialty crop growers. Um, I can start with this, Chris, if, uh, if you're okay with that. Um, Go for it. So kind of like I just mentioned, yeah, I, can, I couldn't leave that one dangling there and then not just keep talking on it, could I? Um, but um, basically we're looking at, um, we're, I guess to back up a little bit too, is that we're, we're not looking at the situation like Emerald Ash Borer, like Chris alluded to, right? We're not going to have, uh, this isn't a, 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 I would say a devastating forestry pest where we're going to have, thousands and potentially millions of trees dead or dying on our streets and our parks and our forests and our backyards. This is probably going to be more of a nuisance pest for, for homeowners in, in the sense that it's not going to kill uh, your large established trees, probably not going to do much feeding damage on a lot of your ornamentals and, and your herbaceous plants. It's really going to be more of an issue of uh, a, a socioeconomic or outdoor nuisance. Um, there's going to be thousands of them probably covering walls and, and uh, outdoor furniture and, and trees. Uh, and then as, as a result of that, they do excrete honeydew, uh, which causes stickiness. Um, it's basically a sugary, watery substance that's their, that's their waste product. Uh, and then that attracts um, pollinators as well and, and ultimately results in, in issues like sooty mold, which, which can be um, aesthetically displeasing, but, but really may not do much damage to the surrounding area. Maybe, may, maybe some implications on plants, but I'm not entirely sure on that. So again, it's really going to be more of a, more of a kind of an ick factor or a gross factor for property owners, <clears throat> unless they're in some kind of significant kind of production, but shifting gears into that, you know, the, the, um, the specialty growers, we're probably looking at uh, potential impacts, potential control measurements for, uh, for great production possibly orchards. Again, the concern about plant mortality is somewhat somewhat suspect and maybe subject, subjective, um, but uh, it's probably going to be a big issue for, for that like agritourism component of, of just the fact that you're going to have thousands, if not millions of these bugs flying around. People come to visit your property, pick apples, um, hunt, whatever it may be, and there's thousands of these things out there. Um, that, that can certainly bother them and kind of make it gross. But there are there are effective control measures for your specialty crops and, and your agricultural production systems um, that can that can take care of this. Um, it's going to be the probably for homeowners and, and most uh, most people, it's going to be more of a nuisance pest and kind of an I'll keep using the term ick factor, but but pretty gross. And not to not to sound silly when I ask this, but I know like this is a question that a lot of people who aren't in like the ecology landscape like us will ask it's not like going to bite me or anything, right? Like this isn't a bug we're worried about in that sense or anything. Yeah. There's, there's no issue about human health, human, um, or, or I'm sorry, pets or animals or anything like that. 
Yeah, so I was just going to kind of hit some basics of, of spotted lanternflies. So for people that know nothing about it, you know, it's not a fly. Um, and it's actually more like a leaf hopper, right? Think. So it has a piercing sucking mouth part. So it goes in there and, and literally feeds on the sap of whatever the plant is. And that's where, it, you know, it, it, that sugary sap moves through its body. And that's where it excretes that honeydew, which is that sweet stuff that causes the city or attracts city mold. But, you know, they're, the problem with them and, and what we see is that they, they kind of mass group on certain plants and then you get a ton of this feeding which can do some little damage to plants but overall a tree or a larger plant can kind of handle even pretty heavy feeding but it just creates um, you know you've got a lot of dead animals a lot of dead insects there you've got this sooty mold this sticky junk and that's really where you get some of the aesthetic and problems or the ick factor like scott says but it's kind of weird in a way that it does have a wide host range, but it has some strong preferences to certain species. And one of the weird things about it is that uh, it's really strong preferences for tree of heaven. And so tree of heaven, of course, is a really problematic invasive plant. It's found in every county in the state. So it's widespread. And spotted lanternfly really likes tree of heaven. It, for a while, we thought it needed tree of heaven to complete its life cycle. I don't think it really does that right now. I think it can it can handle living on other plants pretty well but it, it likes tree of heaven first and then it likes grapevines as another really um kind of preferred plant group and then a few other things as well but it's it's going to be a you know a, a non-biting insect that sucks the sap out of these plants is kind of how it, it it does its thing right the other thing that's kind of unusual about it or not unusual but it's kind of distinctive about it is it's very similar to spongy moth if you know spongy moth as a as an insect where it'll, uh, the females will lay this little mass of eggs and then cover it over with this kind of hard mud-like surface. And so you get these little egg masses that are stuck onto the side of, of everything. It can be stuck on the side of the trees. It can be stuck onto RVs or trailers or, I mean, all over the place, rock, anything. And that's really how it moves around, right? So it, it's not a strong flyer. It's not going to spread by flying very far at all. Um, but it's when it lays that egg mass, it puts that egg mass on something that's mobile, right? So it might be a, a train car or it might be some rock that we're moving from one site to another. Or it might be somebody's trailer or whatever. Uh, and that gets moved from one site to another. That's how this thing moves around. It's kind of accidentally just by us moving junk around is, is, is really where the, the spread of this thing is, is, is happening. Another species that's gotten really good at taking advantage of human behavior, huh? Yep. Um, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> you had alluded to this. You've talked about this a little bit. That spotted lanternfly, like we kind of saw it coming. We knew it was coming. Um, I have it was. It's been in the U.S. since 2012. Is that right? I think it was confirmed in Pennsylvania in 2014, and the best okay. that they can tell is that it was probably or most likely introduced to that area in 2012. So. That projection back is where that comes from, but it's it's probably pretty accurate based on based on what we're seeing um, to date. Yeah, and that's a decent amount of time, right? Like, I mean, it's twenty twenty three, so it's a, it's eleven years. What have others learned about it? You know, good or bad things? Why like that would, are valuable for us to know now that it's uh, new to our state? So. I think one of the the big things, you know, again, we were really worried when we first found it in the state or when it was first found in the country, I'm sorry, um, just because it did amass in such numbers and it was feeding on on a lot of different species. And I think one of the biggest things, probably for the good that we've learned, 
is that it's not as much of a tree killer as we worried at first. You know, we really thought it was going to be devastating to, you know, the grape industry and devastating to the hop industry and really impactful to forestry. And I think the longer that we've had a chance to look at it and study it, um, the more we realize that those are not necessarily the case, right? It's going to be more a pest in people's yards, um, like Scott mentioned earlier, more of a just a, a nuisance issue instead of an, an invasive that's going to devastate industries or ecology in Illinois. So that's kind of the big thing we've learned. I think so. We've also learned a lot more about this is its host range and all the different species it likes. And some of these preferences that I men mentioned earlier, we've got a little more clarity on kind of its life cycle. Uh, it's also pretty hard to control and get rid of in terms of eradication. So I don't know how feasible that is going to be as an option simply because it, it reproduces wildly, right? There's a lot, it, it, can, it can bump up a, a population numbers really quickly. And so I, don't think it's going to be something like Asian longhorn beetle that we can just eradicate from Illinois and it'd be gone, right? I think we've learned that that's less of an option now for this species just because of the difficulty to control. I mean, I feel like I've seen it all over my like TikTok and social media and stuff of everyone catching spotted lanternfly on the East Coast. It even made a spotlight on SNL at one point. Like, I feel like this is like the mass social media eradication efforts and like, um, I was wondering that too, is like, how effective is that, that like people are catching and killing the adults anytime they can, like citizen science kind of effort almost. So interesting to hear about, uh, you know, how effective that can be and things like that. Yeah, it, it's, um, it, it's interesting to look at from the, from point eight to where we are right now, right? And as Chris mentioned, there's been a lot of progress that's been made and, and, you know, from, from both a biological and behavioral standpoint of this, this pest to, um, you know, more on the regulatory side of things. I mean, even just a couple additional points that they're not active feeders. So that's, they're not like, they're not killing and, and mortally wounding these plants because they need those plants to be somewhat healthy to, 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 to subsist off of. But additionally, they're, Chris mentioned, they don't move well over long distances. That's very um, human assisted. And I'll touch on that in a moment with the regulatory side of things, but they do move quite well within tight environs. So even within like a grape set, grapevine setting or grape uh, a vineyard setting, they'll move throughout the course of the day into those grapevines and then off into the forest, then back in and, and with temperature and time. Um, so one of the things that came out of that is that they don't spend enough time on single plants, generally speaking, to kill them. So not only do they not have that mechanism in place, but if you put a million of them on a plant, chances are they're not going to stay on that plant long enough. You know, if that plant is a tree that can, that can hold a million, it, it won't, um, uh, it won't be fatal to that plant. But, you know, from the regulatory side of it, Chris mentioned, and, and it's, it's an excellent point too, very much like spongy moth that uh, they, they move readily with our assistance. And, and um, those egg masses are going to be the things that really move them and, and introduce them to new locations. We have interceptions all the time of dead ones or even live ones. They don't do well in cold. So, They've been intercepted from uh, from cargo bays of airplanes, but once they get up to altitude, the temperatures knock them down and they they show up dead. But what we're really seeing is that they move via rail. Um, the, I want to clarify: you're saying the egg masses don't survive cold very well, or the no? I apologize. Cold. Yeah, yeah. Good, good question there. The adults, the adults are quite vulnerable to temperature as well as chemical controls, but the uh, the egg masses are the uh, <clears throat> tough nut to crack, so to speak. Uh, and, and they're very mobile. They're going to be on trains. They're going to be on uh, 
vehicles, um, non-organic surfaces as well. So when a, a shipment of stone or a, a camper drives somewhere and has those egg masses on them and they emerge, um, that's how those new infestations are going uh, to be um, uh, introduced. So uh, the, the, the biggest challenge with this whole thing is the fact that the pathways are, are non-organic. You know, they're, it's not necessarily strongly tied into to nursery stock or, or firewood or something, even though those are potentially um, uh, vectors or, or pathways, but it is more, we're seeing rail. I will, I will say rail is, seems to be the major contributor to, to its movement. And, and that makes sense why it first showed up in Cook County, right? Because that's a major hub for the rest of the state um, to, to, for railways and, and things like that. And so, I mean, when I heard it was close in, in Indiana, I was like, oh, well, it's coming soon enough, right? It was it was literally 100 where we found the infestation was within 100 feet of rail. And and we've been talking with Indiana and we're kind of backtracking now. They're finding it along the same rail line coming toward us. And this winter, we're going to take a look at it going back and try and connect that dot and then see where it goes beyond that that location here in Illinois. But yeah, rail is definitely a, a major culprit and they like to lay their eggs on on rusty old metal things. So trains trains make sense whether it's the egg laying or whether it's actually that i'm getting on those trains and and hitching a ride all right well as we move towards seeing the spotted lanternfly in illinois and people are asking you know what they can do i know it's hard to do on a podcast but how would you identify spotted lanternfly what are some um, descriptive ways that we can uh, look for look for this insect we can link a picture in the show notes. I, I mean, of course. But I want but... to hear Scott and Chris's best efforts of a of a description <laughs> with audio. I'm gonna let, let Chris go first, and then I'll supplement it. How about oh, that? Th thanks, Scott. I appreciate that. All right, I'll give it my best shot. So, unlike butterflies and moths, which have larvae, you know, a caterpillar, which is a larvae, and it goes through this metamorphosis all the way to an adult and looks very different. This is actually um, this actually has stages of instars, right? Nymphs if you will, um, that so kind of just slowly get bigger, but kind of almost look the same as they go to some level. But so those first little tiny instars are going to be kind of black with white dots on them, you know, and look like a little crawly bug. And as you get larger instars, it picks up kind of a bright red color to them. So they look uh, just like, yeah, like a little tiny spotted black and white and then sometimes red bug. But then the adults, you know, they're going to be big for a leafhopper. They do have these big showy gray spotted wings. And then when they open up their wings, which is why they call it lanternfly, these wings are a little bit translucent and it shows the the underwings, which are bright red. So you're going to have a big bug that's got black spots, gray coloration, and you'll see this bright red uh, glowing underwings kind of under the under the closed wings. And when they open that up, it's really flashy, right? It shows this kind of bright red coloration on it. And uh, yeah, looks like a big leaf hopper, basically like that, but really colorful, actually a beautiful insect. I think so. And size wise, what are we talking here? Like quarter, dime, bead. I don't know what bead we were talking. I don't know. I'm trying to think of other comparison sizes. <laughs> I mean, when Chris was mentioning the nymphs, they will start off pretty small. You will be looking at something that's the size of a bead or something in the first uh, first instar. And as they get bigger and bigger, they'll they'll get into you know, about the size of a dime. And ultimately as adults, they're, they're about an inch long. So I think when most people think of plant and leaf hoppers, they're thinking about something that could probably fit on your, your pinky nail. Uh, these are large and showy. I mean, think more like the size of a quarter. 
And so as we're talking about identificate, yeah, right. <laughs> as we're talking about identificate, yeah, jaw hit the ground there for the listeners. As we're, and I just completely lost my train of thought. I'm sorry. I just can't get over how big they are. And then I just kept thinking about how you were talking about how they're just going to be covering things yeah. in the future as like a nuisance. And I just am thrown back to like the summer in Ohio when with like the, the, uh, is it the mayflies where they're just like everywhere oh. and you like hear the popping when you walk on them. And I'm like, it's gonna be in Illinois. Like this, so. Oh it, yeah. Go ahead, Scott. I was just going to say the other thing, the thing that slipped my mind and came back was um, these are actually a late season bug. So I think most people are, are, um, are probably not going to be familiar with, with that concept or, or be surprised to, to see or hear it that, you know, we, they're, they're still out there as adults now. So when we're talking about these nymphs, that's going to be more toward the, the summer months. And then we're going to look at the flight season of this bug, probably maybe late August through the end of the year until we get a hard freeze to knock them down. So like you started off, Abigail, we, we first got report, we first started getting reports of dead adults and then live adults, like September 16th, uh, 14th, 15th, and 16th, I think it was, we confirmed the, the location on the 18th and then we got usda confirmation on september 26th so just for comparison's sake talking about uh, spongy moth you know we're done we're done detecting that you know at the end of uh at the end of august so this is a much later flying insect and and as chris mentioned it's showy do a quick google search and and uh what we've seen is that once people see them or or get a little familiar with them there's a lot less misidentification i mean there's there's messaging there's uh outreach that's been done out east and and uh the people out there are very very good at identifying it and we'll get there you know we're still getting mistakes but there's there's other insects out there that do look like it but uh it's uh somewhat look like it i should say but you know once you get that discernible eye uh, it really does stand out and and it's a good point that it, even though it is called fly lantern fly it is a plant hopper so it's it's not going to look like your typical house fly it's going to have that kind of pyramid shape to it as it sits there with its wings folded so a very distinguishable bug and, and i think once people get familiar seeing it they'll they'll be much more comfortable identifying it and recognizing it oh yeah i, I think so and i think one thing you mentioned which i always like to highlight when I'm, we're talking about getting stuff from people right we want to get reports from people we want to get them to, to to submit when they find one or they think they identify one I always like to say i uh, i am okay with misidentification and, and reports right so people think at all they have spotted lanternfly, don't worry about getting it wrong. Take a picture of it, send it in, because it's much easier to say, oh, no, that's not it, and and we're done, versus, oh, we didn't get a report, and it's three years later, right, and something like that. So I don't really worry too much about misidentification. It's pretty easy to take a glance at a picture and say yes or no, and then and then move on if it's no, right? So I'm 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 totally fine with that. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Um, I'll make the analogy of like going to the doctor, right? If you have the sniffles and you go to the doctor and the doctor says you just have the sniffles, don't worry about it. Great. You know, if somebody sends in a picture of something and, and we tell them, oh, that's a box elder bug, don't worry about it. Great. But if you don't go into the doctor and it's something bad or you don't make that report to us and it turns out to be something bad, then then the, the ramifications are that much uh, that much greater. So don't ever, yeah, for the general public, for anybody, don't ever hesitate to reach out to to, to my office at the Department of Ag, your USDA office, your extension office, uh, even a district, or I should say a, a municipal forester or a, a landscape professional, um, you know, get it to somebody that knows and, and has access to the uh, 
to the, the network and the resources that we all have to communicate and share things out and, and figure out what it is before, before it's too late. Yep. So is that the best way to report a sighting? Is there like a specific hotline or something or, or anything like that? If we do see one. We've, we've established um, a uh, it's, it's lanternfly at illinois.edu. And, and very much like Chris mentioned earlier is that, um, you know, having some kind of visual evidence, um, you know, there are misidentifications out there. So by doing that, by having that reporting tool by way of uh, email versus phone calls or anything like that, we do have the ability to, to request folks to include photographs if they were able to get them. So that's definitely the most efficient way um, to, to quickly identify this bug. Now that we've officially identified it in the state, we don't have to send samples off anymore. So we can do it from a visual uh, photograph or um, uh, or video as long as that's you know somewhat somewhat validated or corroborated in the sense that it isn't just a cut and paste picture that you know oh I I saw this on the internet and this is what I saw yesterday. Well, you know if it's a picture from your iPhone, great. But if it's something like that, then then it could be a little trickier. But yeah, that, that's by far the best. But but again, if you don't remember that or go to the Department of Agriculture website, whatever it may be. Uh, local extension is a great resource, um, but even talking to your village, public works department, um, municipal forester, or if you do have a, a landscape or landscape professional or arborist that you regularly work with, that would be another good resource too. Absolutely. And some of the things I think that's useful to put in that report, you know, a picture, absolutely multiple pictures if you can, but also just some notes, like where did you find it? Was it alive when you found it? Um, you know, did, was there a lot of them? Uh, some of those just kind of just basic descriptions of what you saw can be pretty helpful. You know, when you get this report, we can kind of understand it. There's a big difference between I saw 60 of them on a tree versus there was a dead one squished on the road, right? We can kind of, we kind of treat those a little differently or, or, or kind of respond to them a little differently. Yeah. Just to echo that, give us all the information you got on it and let us sort through it and figure out what we need. Cause like Chris mentioned, there's, there's a big difference between a dead adult and a live adult or a thousand live adults. So uh, if you can give us that information instead of just saying, I saw, I saw, I saw spotted lantern fly and include a picture, give us a little bit of information on, you know, did you see it on a car? Did you see it on a tree? Did you see it in a nursery? Um, any information you can have so that we don't have to reach back out to you and try and dig that out of you is going to be uh, really helpful. Yeah, absolutely. And realistically, you know, it's really right now we know of in a really confined spot in illinois right there's it's what we know of is not very much but realistically talking over the next 10 years it's going to expand right and so we we can predict that this thing is going to move in illinois we're going to see it in more and more areas very similar if you all remember the whole brown marmorated red stink bug thing in illinois where it just suddenly became a bigger and bigger issue kind of a little bit wider wider spread and then now it's kind of you just you just see it wherever we don't know if that's going to happen to spotted lanternfly, but we can expect it to kind of move to new communities and spread at some rate throughout Illinois. So even if you don't live necessarily in Cook County, um, you may, you know, it's, I wouldn't be surprised if over the next couple, three years, if you're just somewhere in northeastern Illinois that you may find this thing. Thank you so much to both of you for speaking a little bit on the spotted lanternfly. I'm going to let Scott go, and Chris is going to stay on a little bit to talk to us more about invasives in general, just to get to help us understand that ecology and everything. So thanks, Scott, for taking the time. Um, hey, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. Anytime. Yeah. All right, Chris, you're in the yeah. hot seat now. Tell us about invasives. No, I'll, I'll be more specific. Um, <laughs> what is... 
what is an invasive species? We've been talking all about, you know, the spotted lanternfly, but I think some people need even a little more information backed up even further to say, like, what the heck is an invasive and why is it a problem? So, you know, give us your first little pitch of, sure, of sure. what it is. So, Absolutely. So um, invasive, that term invasive, I use it very selectiv- selectively, right? I use it to as a definition or, or a descriptor for an organism, and it could be a plant, it could be an insect like we're talking about or, or whatever, any kind of organism that's not naturally found in that given area. So for Illinois, it could be something that wasn't here naturally, either didn't evolve here or it didn't move here on its own. It's just not a normal part of our ecosystem. And the fact that it is now in this new ecosystem, it's in this landscape, there's doing that it's doing some kind of uh, it's it's altering the landscape some way in a negative fan- manner right so its presence there's consequences for its presence on the landscape that is that is that we deem negative so that could be that there's some kind of ecological damage right we, we it's hurting some of our species like everyone asked for it could be a financial damage because it's costing us more to manage something uh, it could be a human health issue like giant hogweed. There's a lot of, of ways it can be, but it kind of has to be a negative consequence of it being there for us to kind of call it an invasive. Now, can the na- can the negative consequence be it's just annoying, like the dandelion in my front yard, or is that it's, something different? You're going to get different answers for different folks, right? And so I'm interested to hear what Aaron thinks as well. But for me... I think, no, that wouldn't be an invasive. I think it has to be some more serious level of, of, and I think environmental or ecological damage is the the key, right? There's something that it's altering in our ecosystems that's negative before it needs to be an invasive. So a dandelion in your yard may be annoying to you, but that's in an artificial kind of yard that's already full of non-native grasses anyway. So to me, that's not an invasive, right? I don't know. Aaron, what do you think? Oh, I definitely agree. I think... Sometimes we overuse the term invasive, and that really, like you said, should be reserved for ones where we should kind of prioritize our management efforts rather than just trying to get rid of every non-native plant because it is non-native, right? When some are, many of them, most of them, right, are fine um, and aren't going to really cause a huge amount of damage or harm um, in the long term, so. Yep. And, and I hear that term used a lot with native species, right? Oh, yes. red cedar is oh, the yeah. worst invasive or poison <laughs> ivy so invasive or ragweed. And to me, that's not the case, right? Yeah, they may be out of whack a little bit or they may be something that is annoying to us, but it's not necessarily invasive in the sense that it's not this organism that's coming from somewhere else and changing the, the ecology. It's just something that's naturally part of that system that's change just to, to something else or something we just don't like right and so there's very very diff- very big difference in my mind between native organisms that we may want to manage at some level versus a true non-native invasive so and you may not have an answer to this because it's the future of it right but given spotted lanternfly if we find out that it's actually not that big of a deal it's more like annoying if it's not causing us to have to manage for it in that way would it possibly be, could there be a future in which it's downgraded to nuisance and not really considered an invasive? So we're, we're definitely moving into the realm of speculation at this point. I'll just true, make that clear. True. 
Uh, but absolutely it could be, right? So we thought it was going to be much more damaging than it was, than it turns out, than it turned out so far it, that it has been, right? So we thought it was going to be very ecologically damaging. And so far what we've seen in other areas, it hasn't been. And so I think it's either much less invasive, right? Or, uh, or yeah, you could see that being down into that realm of it's kind of more of a nuisance, right? Potentially. I won't hold I you to that, Chris. Don't worry. No, no, no. I'm I'm not like, I'm not, I don't have a crystal ball in front of me. I'm not out there saying, oh, it's going to be a nuisance. Don't worry about it or anything like that. I'm saying, yeah, in the, in, if it turns out that it's even less damaging than we think, and it's just bothersome in people's yards. Uh, yeah. I think you can make an argument that it, it's more of a nuisance. Well, we will see, we will find out in the future. Right. I think it's just cool to see in this case though, that we have been able to do a lot of research really quickly on this insect and find out a lot about it. And we were like ready from the get-go, right? Even, you know, where it was found out East. And so just in contrast to a lot of the other things that we have been here for decades, right? That we're just still figuring out like all of the detrimental impacts of them over the long term. It really seems it's, it's encouraging to me that it can go the opposite way too, that we are like ready for it and we're paying attention to it and studying it and finding out, oh, maybe it's not so bad. So it's, like I said, it's encouraging me because I feel like a lot of the stories with invasives, it goes the opposite way. Absolutely. Or anything, anything with like a, a concerted multi-organizational effort feels like slow and non-effective and things like that. And to hear like, we've had readiness plans. We're learning these things. We learned lessons ahead of time. Like, I'm like, yes, get going. Let's go. Like, I get excited to hear that. Yeah, you know, and and I've been in Illinois for a couple decades now, I think, and the thing that has impressed me the most um, since I've been working with invasive species is the level of partnership and organization that goes on in the state. I mean, there's, you know, state level agencies, nonprofits, federal agencies, you know, universities talking to each other constantly about these problems. And I think it really aids our ability to kind of respond in the right way and understand these issues at a state level. And so I'm kind of patting everybody on the back a little bit here, but I think uh, it's deserved. All right. So if we go back to just invasive species in general, and we talked a little bit about how spotted lanternfly got here, but what are some other ways that these invasives arrive in the U.S.? Sure. You know, there's kind of two big categories. I think you can lump that, right? There's accidental and intentional. And so a lot of our really bad invasives, especially invasive plants, unfortunately, were intentionally introduced here, right? So think of uh, multiflora rose as an example or, or um, autumn olive or things like that. Uh, back in the day, the kind of leading thought with conservation was um, the more diversity, the better, kind of regardless of, of where that diversity came from. So people wanted to introduce new species intentionally. We wanted to bring them over because we the, the thought was they provided some level of, of benefit and, and adding, you know, enhancing our, our landscape. And so uh, if you look at like multiflora rose, it was introduced as a, as, you know, for agriculture, as a living fence to put up in your, in your lands to contain your cattle or autumnal was, um, you know, a, a reclamation plant because it grows well in poor soils and it was a wildlife plant and so forth and so on. So there's a lot of things that have been introduced for agriculture or horticulture because they're beautiful. I mean, look at bush honeysuckle. It actually is a pretty plant. Uh, or, you know, uh, erosion control or, or some of these other and wildlife and some of these other causes. So that's one big category, right? Intentional, we introduced them 
uh, I often call, I've said it a bunch, but the, the introduction, the intentional introduction and promotion of species like multifloros and bush honeysuckle is one of the largest conservation mistakes ever in, in North America. I really think it is. So that's one way. The other way is accidental and they're hitchhikers, right? So things like Japanese stiltgrass, it came in there, they think just as packing material and it wasn't intended to be introduced. Emerald ash borer was brought in, they think as in wood packing material, um, you know, dunnage or crates and just kind of hitched a ride. And so I think those are kind of both of the ways that invasives will get here. Um, once they arrive in the U.S., then they move a whole bunch of other ways, you know, water, people, things that we've already talked about here, too. But. And, you know, sometimes we're introducing, but these plants that either get unintentionally or intentionally or organisms in general that get introduced, do they all become invasive? No, not at all. In fact, the vast majority of introduced organisms don't have any suitability to even survive in Illinois, right? So you think of tropical plants that get introduced or seeds from tropical plants or, or even, you know, pathogens or whatever that are from a, a, a different climate, they're just not going to survive here. Right. And in fact, it's a tiny, tiny percentage that are even have the ability to survive and, and reproduce in Illinois. And it's a tiny percentage of those that can kind of form these free living populations. And then a tiny percentage of those that cause a lot of ecological damage. So I think the numbers say that it's, it's something like one in a thousand, you know, plants that end up getting introduced into you know, causing some level of damage to be called invasive. So it's a tiny, tiny percentage. Um, the problem is the ones that do can be really impactful, right? Just think about how many acres in Illinois are covered in bush honeysuckle. You know, it's thousands upon thousands. Most common uh, woody species in the Chicago wilderness region is buckthorn. Yep, there you go. I was just looking at like 40% of trees in Illinois. Wow. That area, it's it's a crazy number. Yeah. So we already talked a little bit about how invasives affect natural areas, but when we talk about um, us as homeowners, you know, residents of Illinois, how do invasives affect us? That's a good question. So there's one. It's it's you know this is not like a monolithic group, right? Invasives affect things in different ways. Uh, there's quite a few invasives that do have some level of human health issue. Right. And so think about uh, poison hemlock. Right. So poison hemlock can kill you. That'll affect anybody uh, if you ingest it. Uh, there's other ones that will cause rashes. Uh, there's other ones that are allergens. You know, there's a bunch of different things like that. So I think uh, anybody on the landscape um, can be impacted by some of these species that, that are if they get, you know, in contact with some of these human health issues. Uh, others, I mean, it just impacts our whole environment, right? Whether that is um, reducing diversity in your in your county, maybe even reducing diversity on your land, something like jumping worms might actually impact your yard. So I think, you know, if you look at what, whatever scale you're talking about, any homeowner, any landowner in Illinois, if they've got any bit of natural area, may see impacts from invasive species moving in there. But if not, if you somebody that likes to fish or likes to hunt, likes to bird watch, uh, likes to hike or just enjoy any bit of nature in Illinois, we know that there's invasive species that could impact those and reduce our diversity or, or impact the ability to walk through the woods because they're just so thick. Right. So I think I personally consider anybody that lives in Illinois are, um, could be greatly affected by invasive species. Definitely. I had a, a naturalist who um, was really like it found what she was doing so important because she loved the birds so much. And she like had found out how like 
uh, buckthorn is a diuretic for birds and it's actually not giving them any nutrition when they're eating it because at first she was like why are people tearing down the forest like and so now she like really understands and sees that like wow like this is really bad like I want to have plants that are beneficial for the birds and not just that look like they are and so there's more going on there and it really like you said depends on the 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 species of invasive and how its ecology is with that local ecosystem. Oh, absolutely. And it's, you know, it's tough, right? I mean, I agree. You're going out there, you may be using heavy machinery or using herbicides and it's, it can be confusing to people why we do that. Right. we think we're hurting things, but um, it's been tough for me even like learn the more I learn about invasive species, the more invasive species I know, you know, it, it can be depressing. You get out on the landscape and you're like, I don't see a native species around here. Or you just constantly see the same invasive over and over again. You know, it does impact your uh, kind of quality of, of your hike or the, your um, enjoyment of things. And so it's it's kind of a mixed blessing knowing about all these species. Um, and it kind of think it, you know, sometimes ignorance is bliss, right? Man, you must be the worst to go on a hike with, Chris. Oh, oh. <laughs> No, I have learned my lesson. So my wife has said, all right, if we hike with people, I just don't mention that stuff. Just let us enjoy it. And I can just, you know, fume inside when I see that bush honeysuckle. So I, I, I try to tone thing. it down a little bit. Yeah. Same. My parents are like, we can't. And I was like, look at this beautiful plant. I'm like, oh, it's invasive. <laughs> They're like, okay, we don't want to hear it anymore. It's just, nope. This is the place we hike all the time. Well, the more you know, right? <laughs> there we go funny i mean i feel like you pretty much broke it down for us why why we should care about invasives so you know what do i what do i do about it what do you do about invasives yeah what do i do i'm i want to care i i feel inspired chris by the words that you've shared and got out the spotted lanternfly and now i want to know what can i do fantastic that's the best question ever well if you see spotted lanternfly you could report it but i mean and, and and no joke right i think there you can get involved and so there's a lot of different ways to get involved. One would be get those invasive plants that are in your uh, landscaping out of there, right? And so some of the ones that are still being planted, you still see around burning bush, Japanese barberry, Bradford collery pear, Bradford pear, what do you want to call those flowering pears? All of those are still being used, right? You see them in people's yards. If that's you, you know, you may want to consider replacing those with something that's non-invasive or even better native, right, in, in there. I think that's a simple step that any of us can do. Other than that, you know, volunteer. Volunteer at your local um, county conservation board or forest preserve district. Get involved with the Master Naturals program. Some of these places, they are just really, really in need of assistance controlling these invasives. And a lot of them you can control by hand. Right? You can go out in the spring and you can pull garlic mustard out of a forest. You can uh, help cut down bush honeysuckle in the fall. You know, there's a lot of little simple steps you can do that um, as long as there's a bunch of us out there doing them can really have huge, you know, ecological impacts. You can adopt a trail. And I knew a guy down here that would do that. He would love mushroom hunting in the spring. And he kind of said, well, I'm going to adopt this trail as I go look for my mushrooms. He brings a grocery bag or two and pulls garlic mustard. Right. And so it's just a simple, it doesn't really um, require a lot of effort for him, but you know, he's kept that, that whole trail pretty much garlic mustard free for decades now. So I think, you know, that kind of stuff, you can tell your neighbor if they've got a bunch of bush honeysuckle, be really polite about it, of course, but tell them that they need to control it. Those kind of things. A little bit of education goes a long way, as long as you're friendly. 
I was going to say too, yeah, like that makes a big difference, like telling your community members and your your people you know about, a lot of people don't know about calorie pair, for example. Um, a lot of people, it's like, uh, for a lot of towns, it's the standard parkway tree that they plant. Um, yeah. And so, you know, telling your friends, your neighbors, you never know who you talk to might be someone who's in a position to change a policy or make a difference, you know, and you never know if someone you talk to feels inspired to change their own yard. Maybe they say how cool your, uh, you know, spice bushes and they're like, uh, I got to get that plant. So it always goes back to natives, right, Erin? So every podcast episode, every time. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Somebody once told me one time, and I can't remember the exact wording of it, but like the best the best conservation ideas are spread over the fence, right? And so if your neighbor uh, sees you improving your land and they actually see like, oh, wow, they're, they, they're more deer on that land or there's neat wildflowers or whatever, they're going to ask you about it, right? And so I think like, neighbor to neighbor, mouth to mouth spread or whatever with some of these great ideas. It's just, it's fantastic. So the work you do on your land has some really neat benefits kind of broader than, than, than actually on your acres, right? Absolutely. I mean, that's whole, the whole basis for the work that I do, Chris. So I buy into that a hundred percent. Well, Chris, Thank you so much for taking the little bit of extra time for chatting with us about invasives and giving us a good understanding. I think I feel a little bit, uh, at least I like that we ended on an optimistic note because I feel a little bit more uh, like ready to take on this invasive fight or at least understanding of it and talking to my neighbors and, and things like that. So I really appreciate it, Chris. It's been a really great time chatting with you. Yeah, anytime. Happy to do it. Well, this has been um, a special edition of the Spotlight on Natural Resource podcast. Uh, check out, hopefully, in a week or two uh, when we talk to Joy about bats. So I, I look forward to it. It'll be a good time. Everyone have a great week.